Amen. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I get to be uh, one of the pastors. Uh, enjoy the work that God has called me to and glad that God calls us together. It was good to be together. Be together. Uh, over the last week, Good Friday service, Easter Sunday service, uh, baptisms along with uh, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus last Sunday. Uh, so an exciting Sunday for sure. But you know what I also love? I love like regular stuff. I like regular Sundays, uh, singing regular songs with regular people. Uh, and uh, you know, God, God feeds us. We grow, uh, not just with occasional feasts, but with the regular disciplines of uh, of prayer, reading the Word, and fellowship with God's people. And so, glad that you've made it a priority. I know you could have been enjoying the great outdoors today, and you came in here instead. So, uh, praise God for, uh, for a place to meet. Um, we are all different from each other in lots of different ways. One thing, though, that we have in common is that we are all tempted to sin. And another thing we have in common is that we all fail and give in to temptation to sin. Sin is very simply just not being or doing what God requires. And that was the definition we taught our kids uh, when they were little. Sin is not being or doing what God requires. God says, be and do this, and we miss the mark. We, we fall somewhere outside of what God calls us to do and be, and that's sin. We all fail the test. Maybe you find yourself tempted in a lot of the same ways and failing in a lot of the same ways again and again and again. And you might be frustrated, wondering, feeling defeated, like, is there any way out? Is it possible to be tempted and not to sin? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Is there any hope for a lasting victory beyond a moment here and a moment there? Those are good questions to ask, and today's passage has good news for all kinds of people who face all kinds of temptation. Before Easter, we are making our way through Luke, and so we got through Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and in Luke 3, we saw John, who we now call John the Baptist, preparing the people for the Lord we saw Jesus being baptized in this beautiful moment as Jesus, eternal Son of God, is baptized, goes down into the water, comes back up. We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and we hear the voice of the Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And that's where we left off before Easter. Today we pick it up, we finish up chapter 3, and we go into chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Now, I'm just going to read the first portion of the passage right now. Chapter 4, I'm going to read in bits as we go through it. And you might look down at your Bible and say, oh, you're going to read that? Uh, and, and believe me, I was tempted to not read it. Uh, we're at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for God, even when Scripture looks like reading 77 names. So, I'm going to just read through Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, and then for the rest of the message as we walk through, makes a couple notes on that, and then we're going to walk through chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 in the rest of the sermon. So, if you're able to, uh, please stand as we read the very Word of God. I'll pray, and then we'll read. Father, I thank you that you have put uh, me a regular ordinary guy along with regular ordinary people who face everyday kind of temptation and who fail. And you put us in this place today. And God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit working through your Word, wake us up 
out of our slumber? Would you make us now sober-minded so that our minds and our hearts can focus on you and your word for your glory and in the name of your Son we pray, amen. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, God's word says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Ar. Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. You can be seated. <laughs> wow. Listen, if you, if you knew Hebrew, you wouldn't be clapping. Uh, but thank you. Um, well, here's what we got. What's the point of that? Why, why in the middle, when you look at the other Gospels, you have Jesus' baptism followed by Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? Why all of a sudden here does Luke insert this genealogy that covers 77 generations? Why does he do that? Why does he insert that here? How is this connected to what came before and what comes after it? A couple of notes. Note number one, Jesus is the beloved Son of God, and He is truly human. That's one of the points of why this is here. Jesus, it says here at the beginning, was about 30 years age when He begins His ministry. David was about 30 years of age when He began to reign as king. There's, there's a pattern there. Matthew, you might remember, has a genealogy. One of our family, we're a weird family, so one of our family traditions around Christmas is we listen to Andrew Peterson. He's the one who wrote that song, Is He Worthy? He also wrote a song called Matthew's Begats, and he just made up a song that just goes through Matthew's genealogy, um, and we like listening to that. Um, so, so he wrote that song, but Matthew's genealogy, if you go back and read Matthew's genealogy, you'll note there are a number of differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. The names aren't all the same. For, for some of those, we have some easy explanations. Other ones, we don't have every explanation. There's some things we just don't know. Luke's, you'll notice, if you compare Luke's and Matthew's, Luke's is much longer than Matthew's is. But here's the most important difference between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. 
while Matthew starts with Abraham and works backwards to Jesus, Luke starts with Jesus going back all the way, not just to Abraham, it goes through Abraham, but goes back all the way to Adam. So that's a huge difference between Matthew's and Luke's. Matthew's goes to Abraham, that's how far back it goes, where Luke's goes all the way back to Adam. Now, why, why, why that difference? Well, well here's, remember, uh, as we started the gospel according to Luke, we noted that a theme of the gospel of Luke was this. Luke is the true story of God's plan to save all kinds of people in Christ Jesus. And Luke, more than the other gospel writers, emphasizes the all kinds of people. So while Matthew, writing to primarily a Jewish audience, would be careful to make sure he can trace Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, where Luke is trying to get across this idea that Jesus came to save all kinds of people, is not going to stop at Abraham, because not everybody is descended from Abraham. But who is everybody descended from? Adam, right? So it makes sense that Luke would go all the way back to son of Adam, son of God, right? So, so that's the most important difference to know between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. So from the context, it's clear that Jesus is the son of God. That's what we heard in Jesus' baptism, and that's immediately followed by tracing Jesus' lineage because he was truly human, right? Jesus, fully human. And so we can even trace back his lineage, his descendants. He has a family tree, right? So that's, that's the importance, I think, of this genealogy put in this spot. It is to show us that Jesus, the beloved Son of God, is truly human. He is descended ultimately from Adam, just like every other human who has been born. That make sense? Okay. That's why that's emphasized, and that's why I read it. Now, Luke chapter 4 will get us into what happens really kind of just at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so let's read first verses 1 to 2, where we'll get the setting. Verses 1 to 2 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. How many of you kids here today have ever told your mom or your dad that you are hungry? You've told them, when you tell them you're hungry, how long ago has it been since you ate last time? Sometimes like an hour. Sometimes like a few minutes, right? Like you just, and your parents have to tell you like, we just got done eating like a half hour ago and you're hungry again, right? Notice, how long did Jesus go without eating? 40 days. Do you think Jesus was hungry at that point? Yes, very hungry. But note a couple other things in these first couple of verses. Jesus is very hungry because he's been fasting for 40 days. Where is he? He's in the wilderness, okay? He's in the wilderness. Why is Jesus in the wilderness? Because the Holy Spirit led him there, right? Jesus, it says, full of the Holy Spirit and then led by the Spirit into the wilderness 
is there. And what's happening while he's there? Well, he's not eating ever. So he doesn't have to take any time to like find food to eat. He's there in the wilderness. And what we know about what he's doing is that the devil is tempting him. The devil shows up. And it doesn't tell us at what time during the 40 days that the devil shows up, but it tells us the devil shows up. And because of the language here and also in verse 13, it seems pretty clear to most people that this is like a sampling of the three temptations that Jesus faced from the devil. There there was likely a whole series of temptations that Jesus faced. These are the three that are recorded for us in Scripture. Jesus is being tempted by the devil himself while he's in the wilderness fasting and hungry for 40 days. Now, let's listen to the three temptations that are listed here. Temptation number one is in verses three and four. Let's look at verses three and four. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Note that temptation, how it begins. The devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. On Good Friday, I read from Matthew's Gospel. You remember what happened when Jesus was on the cross, what the the people said to him while he was hanging on the cross? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So Jesus, later in his life, would hear this same temptation. If you are the Son of God, then do this. And here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the devil himself tempts Jesus to prove himself. Now this would have been actually tempting because while Jesus had heard from the Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased, he had yet done no miracles that we know of right? that would prove what the Father said was true. Additionally, this would have been really tempting because what was the devil tempting him to do? Turn the stone into what? Bread. Bread sounds really good when you haven't eaten for 40 days or so, right? So so he's tempted in that way, but did you note how Jesus responded? He begins by saying, it is written. Now, when he's saying it is written, he's referring back to Scripture, right? It is written... It has been written in what we now call the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's actually quoting there Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So he's quoting Scripture and saying, man does not live by bread alone. He doesn't even quote the whole verse, right? Man does not live by bread alone. Jesus, though he probably desired because he has a physical body and he's hungry, it told us he was hungry, Though bread would have tasted really good, he resists the temptation to turn a stone into bread. Okay? So that's what we see first. Second temptation, verses 5 through 8. In verse 5, let's just read 5 through 7 first. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. So, we don't know exactly what this looks like, but somehow Jesus is made to be able to see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and the devil offers him, I will give you all this glory and authority, claiming that all of that has been given to him. Now, question you might have, 
Has it really all been given to him? Well, I think he's exaggerating a bit. Does he have great power and authority? Yes. Does he have all power and authority and glory? No. Yet he is he's exaggerating what he has and offering to give that to Jesus on one condition. What's the condition? If you then will worship me. Right? That's the temptation there. Compared to the devil and his great power, Jesus, remember at this point, we know Jesus from the rest of the Gospels. At this point, we know him as one who has been born of a virgin and who spent almost all, well, all of his life, most of his life, for a while a refugee in Egypt, but most of it in this small town in Nazareth. And nobody even really knew anything about him, right? And here you've got the devil with this power and authority and glory and offering that to Jesus. Does Jesus fall into temptation? Look at verse 8. And Jesus answered him, it is written. Oh, there he goes again. He's going to quote scripture again. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus will not fall into that temptation. I will worship no one else. I will serve no one else. I will not bow down to you because it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and him only shall you serve. Right? He's standing firm. We just saying, is he worthy? And Jesus knows he is, right? And so I'm not bowing down to the enemy. Temptation number three. Now verse nine. Let's just read verse nine first. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, here he's using that same phrase again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Well, now we might want to like, well, what, why would that be tempting? To stand up on a high place and throw yourself down. Why is that even tempting? Well, now you're going to see the devil himself start to quote scriptures. Not only Jesus who knows scripture, the devil also knows scripture and is going to tempt him by using scripture himself. Look at verse 10. You might know where this comes from. This comes from Psalm 91. The devil knows the Psalms, and he's quoting Psalm 91 to Jesus. And he says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil quotes Psalm 91 with his reasoning being this. Listen, if God promises in his word to protect his people, then certainly he would protect you because if you're really his son, you could throw yourself down from here and he would protect you because he said it in his word, right? Test him. Try it out. See if your God really is as powerful as you think he is. Test him. And Jesus, will he give into this temptation? Look at verse 12. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Love this. You shall not push the Lord your God to the test. It, he, he's calling on him. He's tempting him to kind of presumptuously assume, to kind of push the boundaries and say, let's see what your God can actually do. Do something that looks foolish, jumping off of this high place, and see if your God can come and save you then. Prove it. If you're the son of God, and if God's word is true, then he's going to do it, right? And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, 
quoting Scripture himself. All right, so we've gotten this sampling of these temptations. We've seen that every time Jesus is quoting Scripture, and every time Jesus does not fail and give in to temptation, look at verse 13. I love verse 13. There's some finality and a little bit of suspense. Verse 13 says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil's not done for good. It says, until an opportune time. He will be back. But it is clear, at this moment, though Adam in the garden, when tempted by the serpent, quickly failed, Jesus, here in the wilderness, tempted again and again, the devil himself, even twisting the word of God like he did in the garden, Jesus never failed. He stood up to every single temptation, resisting it. A massive spiritual battle, don't miss this, a massive spiritual battle had just taken place here in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, it's Jesus against the devil, and Jesus, the fully human son of God, wins. In the word of one of the rappers I like to listen to, KB, not today, Satan, right? Like, not today. And Jesus wins. Now, here, so so there's, there's the passage. Now, I want to spend some time getting this passage into our minds and hearts, applying it. We are all tempted in many ways. I see three clear ones in this passage, and I'm going to talk to us about Three ways we may be tempted and three ways to resist temptation. That's part of the good news. It's not just, hey, Jesus did it. But but we can actually learn something from him. So I'm going to share some good news and then I'm going to share some better news. So we'll start with the good news. The good news is this. We're all going to be tempted in many ways. Here's the three that I see in this passage. If you go to the next slide, there we go. Physical desires. That's how Jesus was tempted with the bread in verses 3 and 4. Tempted with power, that's what we saw in verses 5 through 8. And then tempted by presumptuously pushing boundaries and testing God. Okay, so let's go through those one by one. Are we tempted by our physical desires? Yes. This might be where some of you feel the most temptation. I took out a couple of examples, there's more than this, but a couple of examples, gluttony. Okay. Does your desire for food go beyond joyfully receiving God's good gift of food? It is a good gift, right? But does it sometimes go beyond that and become an idol for you? Like something that you have to have. Like something that you deserve. Something you need when you had a bad day. Something you go to celebrate when you had a good day. When you see food, you want food, and you fail to practice self-control, never denying yourself the pleasure of food. I struggle with this. The Bible calls this gluttony. And when we always turn to food, we fail to turn to what will really satisfy. And that's why Jesus says to the devil, man does not live by bread alone. The rest of that verse is, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That sometimes we practice self-control, resist the temptation to turn to food, knowing that, God, you alone can satisfy me even more than food can in this moment. Are we tempted by physical desire in the way of greed? How many of you see things, and when you see things, you want things? Kids, you know this. 
right? And, and just so you know, kids, like, don't expect, like, oh, when I get older, I'm not going to be like that anymore, right? A lot of us that are older than kids, we still feel like this. We see stuff, we want stuff. We're enticed by the latest technology upgrade, the unlimited plan, the newer model, the better house. We buy into the world's lies so easily that more is better. That if we can get it, then we should go get it. And we fail to hear the severity of warnings like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 that says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We need to hear that warning that we might protect ourselves and ask God for help to fight against the temptation that we have in us still towards greed. Lust would be another one on this list of physical desires. Our eyes are bombarded daily with images that stir up lust and we indulge. We keep watching. We scroll a little bit further. Our eyes linger a little bit longer and we ignore the clear warning of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Brothers and sisters, we are tempted. We don't just look at Jesus tempted in the wilderness like, oh, I've never felt anything like that. We face temptation to give in, to sinfully give in to physical desires daily. We need to hear this warning from James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We must take seriously temptations to sin according to physical desires. Also, power. Verses 5 to 8, Jesus was tempted to take power. I'm going to go through these a little more quickly. Jesus was tempted to take power, to take authority, to take glory. We're tempted in this way too. Maybe for you it comes out in an unhealthy desire to dominate. Perhaps you use your body to abuse others. You use your tongue, your words to manipulate others. But a temptation to take power and control can also look like anxiety sometimes because anxiety often attacks when we feel like we don't have any control over a situation, either now or in the future. So we respond by doing whatever we can to control everything we can to help deal with our fears and anxieties. Anxiety tells us that there is a threat out there, and if I'm going to be okay, it's up to me to take control and to know everything and do everything I can to try to make sure that I'm going to be okay. Instead of struggling to take control, we need to obey the command and hear the promise. Listen to this. Note the connection in this passage. A lot of times people quote 1 Peter 5, 7, but it's all part of one sentence with 1 Peter 5, 6. Note the connection between God's power, our humbling ourselves, and our anxiety. Listen, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Some of you struggle day in and day out with anxiety, and you can give in to that in a way that causes you to think, like, I need control. I need to know. It's a battle going on spiritually that you need to regularly ask God, God, help me in this battle 
to recognize that you're in control and I'm not. You've got this and I don't. God, help me to be okay with not knowing everything and not controlling everything. And then third, presumptuously pushing boundaries and testing God. In verses 9 through 12, we remember the devil attempted Jesus to push a boundary, kind of like forcing God's hand, like, well, if God said this, go ahead and test him and see if he's really going to do it. Of course, Jesus doesn't give in, but we often do. We sometimes act as though we can use God and his word to get what we really want. This might be more common if you listen to a lot of the prosperity preachers on TV. They misinterpret a lot of God's promises, trying to get you to give them more money, basically, saying that what you really want is money, right? So you give me your money, because that's what they really want, and then if you give me your money, then God is going to give you money, right? So, like, I mean, he promised that in his word, right? So go ahead and and do it. Just test it out. This is not loving and pursuing God as the greatest treasure, This is presumptuously pushing boundaries and testing God, revealing that your real God might actually be money, material things, and comfort. We must hear the same command that Jesus shared with the devil. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, three ways we're often tempted quickly, three ways to resist temptation. Again, many more than this, but here's three I saw in this passage. Because some of you, recognize like these temptations just keep coming that's fine thank you for pointing out that they're here and recognizing them I've seen that but how do I resist temptation what do we learn from Jesus well a couple of things first and foremost I think we need to know we need the spirit remember this passage began by Jesus saying Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit he was led by the spirit into the wilderness Jesus is not alone in the wilderness the spirit is with him Let me just tell you this, if you're not a Christian, if you do not love Jesus, I honestly don't know how to help you battle temptation. Like, I have very little hope in any sort of secular psychological methods for battling temptation. But by God's grace, I know that many of us gathered in this place here today are gathered here because by God's grace, we have turned from sin and we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That means that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That means that the same Holy Spirit who descended like a dove on Jesus in his baptism now dwells in us. That the same Jesus who led, the same Holy Spirit who led Jesus out into the wilderness now dwells in us. That the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. So there is hope if the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We can resist temptation. Secondly, we need scripture, right? Jesus, I think, makes that very clear by his example. Jesus quoted scripture every time that he was tempted in this passage. That means that Jesus had to know it. Like he didn't have his, you know, Gideon Old Testament uh, with him. uh, Just cracked that thing open in the wilderness while he was out there. We saw a couple of weeks ago at the end of Luke chapter 2 that Jesus had to learn and grow. Right? He was in the temple when his family went back home. He was there because he was asking questions because he was trying to learn more things. Jesus devoted himself to learning the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God so that at this moment he could do it. How are we doing that? Are we working at knowing Scripture, learning it, memorizing it so that we can be ready to use it? Ephesians 6 says that part of our armor in standing against the devil's schemes, right? That's, that's the point of the armor of God, right? The devil has these schemes. 
we put on the armor of God. And part of that armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's the only offensive weapon in the armor. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And whether we see it or feel it or not, the reality is that all of us are right now engaged in a great spiritual battle and we best not go in unarmed. And then finally, third way to resist temptation, I just call it this, with sober-minded stubbornness. With sober-minded stubbornness. The other thing I noticed in this passage is how Jesus responded with this sober-minded stubbornness that eventually causes the devil to just give up for the day. Temptation after temptation, and Jesus stands firm. He does not give in. He is stubborn in all the right ways, right? There is a spiritual battle happening right now, and it happened in your life last week, and it's going to happen in our lives again this next week. And like a soldier in battle, some of you have been a soldier in battle, you must know that you need to be alert, head on a swivel, alert to what's going on around you at all times, to be sober-minded and not quickly distracted. 1 Peter chapter 5, I just earlier read 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Remember, casting all your, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Very next verse. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Does that sound a little scary? It is, right? This devil who was tempting Jesus in the wilderness hasn't given up yet. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What's the command? Be sober-minded and be watchful. We must remember, like we talked about last week on Easter, sin, if you are in Christ, sin no longer rules over you. It does not have power. James 4, 7 says it this way, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? Not today, Satan. That's good news. Aren't you grateful for good news that, that there's an example when temptations come, here are some ways that I can resist it. But let's listen to this. If that's all I left you with today, many of you would walk out of here feeling like, yes, I can do it. And then you would fail and you would feel hopeless again. Some of you, like I didn't even get you to the point where you think you can do it yet. Right? But here's even better news. Better news, yes, we should keep trying, empowered by the Holy Spirit, putting on the armor of God, using Scripture, right, to keep fighting. So keep fighting that battle. But let me tell you some better news with even greater hope. The better news is not a set of how-tos. It's a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me make it short and simple. The only way those who have been tempted and failed, the only way those who have been tempted and failed can have lasting victory is through union with Jesus, the truly human, perfect Son of God, the true and better Adam. We talked about this last week. Adam failed in the garden, and since then, every one of us, descended from Adam, is born a sinner by nature and by choice. We are born united to Adam. Adam failed in the garden. Israel failed in the wilderness. Every one of us has failed again and again and again. And the good news is not, hey, try harder and you can do better. The good news, the better news is this. 
that Jesus was tempted and he did not fail. And we, by God's grace, can be united to Christ by faith. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. And the only way that we will have final, ultimate, lasting victory and hope over sin and death is to be united to Christ by faith. If you want to hear more, like I'm not going to preach Easter message again. Just go back on YouTube and, and watch, listen to the message from last week for more on that. But I think we need to end today by rejoicing. That, that the plea that we have before the throne of God is not, God, look it, I tried harder and I did better. That the plea we have before the throne of God, God, I tried and by your by the power of your Holy Spirit in me, I made progress throughout my life, but I never made it. But I thank you that my plea before you, God, is not I did better and I tried harder and I almost made it. My plea is Jesus and only Jesus. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. We need to sing that with joy. So let's do that here. Let's pray first. Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news that that we can resist temptation because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Thank you that you've given us an example in this passage of how to resist temptation. But we need your help. And so would you empower us by your Spirit? Would you help us to diligently learn and apply Scripture? Would you help us to stand up to temptation with a sober-minded stubbornness this week? Would you help us to do all of that out of hearts that are eternally grateful that by your grace, many of us come in here today united by faith to Jesus, who was tempted and who triumphed who was put to death for our sins, who was buried, and who was raised from the dead. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you're able, please stand.